and welcome to the Grand Slam Tennis Podcast. And today we've got a very special guest indeed. We're joined by New York Times bestselling author and author of the definitive biography of Alice Marvel that's come out last month. It's uh, Robert Weintraub. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Finn. Greatly appreciated. So you've published a biography about Alice Marble, the divine Alice Marble, <laughs> it's called. Um, I guess we should start by asking you, what, why, why did you want to write a biography about this very unique tennis player? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't uh, know anything about her uh, when I first came to her story. I didn't really know much about her beyond the name, which was just sort of vaguely familiar to me as, you know, a woman from the uh, sort of dusky past of American tennis. And uh, I came across a memoir that she wrote in a, in a used bookstore one day. Uh, she wrote it just before she died, and it was published posthumously. And to put it mildly, it was a fascinating story. Uh filled with all sorts of daring do and heroism on her part. And also just an incredible story of not just her tennis prowess, but her mental toughness and physical toughness that overcame a, just an amazing series of obstacles and, and, and drawbacks over many years of her career and then beyond. So I really thought that, you know, as I did more research into her and her story and, and saw that there really was not any sort of biography or 20,000 foot uh, you know, viewpoint approach to her story. I thought uh, that was a niche that needed to be filled. And fortunately, you know, my uh, my agent and my publisher agreed. And uh, I won't say shortly later, but you know, as these things go, uh, the next thing I knew, I was knee deep into the Alice Marvel story. And your title really struck me, especially as I, I was going <laughs> through the book. Uh, that adjective divine. Did you choose that because of all these kind of corporeal? barriers she had to overcome in a way you mentioned there the kind of physical uh, turmoil she kind of went through throughout her life yeah the, there was a bit of the uh, the sanctified to the <laughs> to her life and and to the title i don't know that it was a conscious choice to do that i thought it just sounded good um i may have been influenced by uh you know the divine miss midler bet midler i think she used to call herself so uh maybe uh, subconsciously i thought of that too but it seemed to work the moment i uh, i put put it on paper and, uh, you know, as these things go, I don't know if the audience knows much about the, the publishing process, but the working title an author uses often as he goes along is then uh, taken away from him by the, uh, by the publishing entity who have a whole team of, of marketers who, you know, put it through a search engine optimization uh, panel and, uh, you know, kind of decide among 10 or 15 people what the, what the title should be. So of the four books I've written, this is actually the first one that was my working title and survived that process. So that must have been uh, working for other people as well, which I'm happy about. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's kind of go back to the start then with Alice Marble. Um, so she is born in not typical circumstances for a tennis player at the time, right? Basically, uh, the, the book is tracking a, a lot of the time she's in aristocratic circles, but she's not aristocratic herself. She, she's Absolutely. from a very humble background, um, and she grows up in San Francisco playing on the Golden Gate Park courts that are then, as you describe at the end of the book, named after her. Um, I guess maybe the best place to start is her relationship with Eleanor Tennant who is her coach, um, just, I don't know, describe that relationship because it's incredibly complex, but also not to reduce it down too much, but it seems like the first kind of, 
I don't know, uh, intense player-coach relationship that we've become so familiar with in tennis. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It was really a pioneering relationship. Um, yeah, just to say, circle back, Alice, yes, grew up in San Francisco. Uh, they moved there from a, a mountainous uh, area in Northern California when she was a young girl, and her father died shortly thereafter. So, yeah, they were, they were a poverty-stricken family. This was, you know, uh, the Depression as well, so... It was not a good time for uh, America, but she, you know, was a very uh, tough and hard scrabble type. And Eleanor Tennant was as well. They had very similar backgrounds, really. Eleanor was a generation older, but also grew up playing kind of out of poverty in San Francisco on those same Golden Gate Park courts. Uh, she actually stole a tennis racket from a person who was boarding <laughs> in her home, thanks to the, uh, the famous 1906 <laughs> earthquake in San Francisco, swiped the racket and didn't really know what it was, but it was curious enough to, to go to the park, uh, Golden Gate Parks and the tennis courts and uh, discover what the game was. And she pulled herself up to become not just a good player, but, uh, you know, wound her way south to Los Angeles and became the, uh, the teacher really just by sheer will became the teaching pro, the first ever teaching pro at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And this is important because through that job, she really became someone who was, you know, uh, a coach, a teacher, a mentor to the, uh, to the stars. <laughs> Old Hollywood really flocked to her. Tennis was just catching on as, a, as an activity for them. And she really uh, got to be close friends with the likes of Errol Flynn and Marlena Dietrich, and especially for our story, Clark Gable and uh, his future wife at the point. We're talking about uh, Carol Lombard. And Lombard became not only good friends with Eleanor Tennant, but also great friends with, with Alice Marble. And really, Eleanor's great dream was to find someone like her who grew up, didn't have the, the privileged you know, upbringing. You know, I think it's probably still true today to a point, but especially then, uh, it was a, tennis was a country club sport. You were expected to be not just well-off financially, but also mannered. Um, to level up, as they say, you know, and you, it was not really a sport that was conducive for a lot of people who didn't come from that background. And Eleanor had beaten the odds and done that. And what she really wanted to do was find another public court player, not a country club player, and, you know, mold her, lift her, force her, prod her uh, to that championship level. And Alice was the perfect student for her, worked out perfectly. Not only was Alice this incredible whirlwind of physical talent, speed, power, um, you know, even Grace, when she kind of learned a few tricks of the trade, but uh, she was very pliable. And at first, their relationship was really that of, uh, you know, a mold of a lump of clay and a sculptor. I mean, uh, you know, Eleanor ran Alice's life for nearly a decade, really, and kind of not just told her how to play and what to do on the court and how to attack various opponents and, you know, strategize and do all the manner of things in the tennis realm, but, uh, you know, they lived together. They, she paid all of Alice's bills. She taught her how to dress and told her what to eat and, you know, what physical regimen to, uh, to undertake and who to talk to about doing this and that. I mean, she was really, you know, just as Bengali all the way around. And this was highly unusual, especially, you know, for the time, of course, and for two women, it was extremely unusual. Uh, and not just pioneering, as we said earlier, but, I don't want to say controversial, but it was definitely something that raised a lot of eyebrows when the two of them would, you know, basically be together at all times. And because of the differences in their age, it was easy to be considered then the press of the time called them sort of a mother-daughter team that was out there to 
win championships, but really their relationship was much closer than that. I mean, they had a great deal of, you know, rumors certainly of, uh, of homosexual affairs and it really went beyond that. I mean, it was more, it was deeper even, you know, it's kind of the love of two people who were on the exact same train track toward the exact same destination and were willing to do anything and everything to get there. And when they achieved it, uh, it meant so much more to both of them. And when their relationship finally fell apart, thanks in large part to World War II ending Alice's career, uh, you know, the two of them had a, had a falling out that was, as you would probably anticipate, given their closeness, it was then very operatic and very dramatic. But for, to your earlier point, the fact that, that these two had this coach-player relationship that was unusual for the time and extremely uh, ahead of the time, you know, it's the kind of thing where we look today to not just tennis coaches, but coaches in all sports and managers for those of you in England, uh, you know, the Sir Alex Ferguson's and player, uh, coaches like that who pull out all the sort of psychological and physical tricks they can possibly use to get the results, and that's what matters. And this was a woman doing this in the 1930s with a female tennis player. So, yeah, she was the forerunner in a lot of ways to, you know, sort of the most lionized uh, coaches and managers that we see down through the years. And Tennant also coaches Bobby Riggs, doesn't she? But I guess with um, Alice, like you say, it's a much more entangled relationship, isn't it? Not just because of the potential kind of romance that you allude to in the book, but also financial obligations that Alice has to Eleanor Tennant because she um, basically pays for her to recover in a... um, um, a sanatorium that's the word that's the word i was looking for uh, after yeah. she's <laughs> suffered from tuberculosis hasn't she um, it's not used anymore that's why you're struggling yeah, to find it that's, yeah. yeah it sounds like a very unforgiving place the name is uh, <laughs> perfectly apt isn't it for the for the way that alice kind of finds it doesn't she um no, but no. i just want I, I wonder your thoughts about that uh, that kind of codependency that they have because you say they're yeah, kind of on the uh, same train track but they're also inextricably tied in quite kind of um, volatile ways in other yeah. senses as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good description, codependency. Uh, I wish I'd, wish I'd said that earlier. Um, yeah. You, it, say, you say you it in book a lot. Yeah. In you the do book, yes, I do. Yeah. Right. I just, you know, I, yeah. I write better than I uh, speak extemporaneously, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, yeah, they, you know, because of the closeness, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Eleanor, not only did she pay all of Alice's bills, Alice was struck with tuberculosis that was many feel was brought on by the fact that she suffered a devastating heat stroke having played four matches in a single day at the whim of the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association a few months earlier. She went to Paris to prepare for, the, for Wimbledon in a few months, or a few weeks, I should say, and collapsed on the court was then diagnosed with tuberculosis. And at the time, that was uh, not just a career-ending diagnosis, but probably a life-threatening one as well. And she was put in a sanitarium to recover or die, whichever came first, and was really left there to turn into a lump. And not only did Eleanor pay all the bills during this long period that she was in there, several months, but went there every single day driving you know, some 60 round-trip miles just to just to check in on her, on her, uh, her student there. So she gave of herself financially and physically during that period and eventually just broke her out of there entirely and said, this is enough. You're moving in with me uh, and we're going to get you back into fighting trim and back to the top. And when she did, Alice missed two full years of tennis and then one 
1936 U.S. National Championship. And that was an extraordinary moment, not just in her career, where you know, this amazing comeback where she was basically written off completely and then re, you know, came back to win the, the biggest title in all of the United States, but also it was an incredible moment for the two of them as in their relationship. And that was about the high uh, point, even though they certainly won many more titles together. That was really where Alice figured out Eleanor can do no wrong, knows what she's talking about. And, you know, I'm going to follow her, her every diktat. Um, and that certainly led to <laughs> many, many negative uh, episodes down the road. And especially when it came to Alice to, you know, was only yeah, a very young girl really when she first uh, got together with Eleanor, just 21. So, you know, as she grew into adulthood and wanted to spread her wings and, and flower more as a woman, she was met almost universally uh, at every turn by Eleanor kind of preventing her. You know, Eleanor liked the relationship the way it was, which was uh, at that point, it really codependency is almost too strong. It was complete uh, dependency by Alice on Eleanor in a lot of ways. And that suited Eleanor just fine. But of course, you know, it came to a point where Alice didn't like that anymore. And the more she struggled against it, the tighter Eleanor tried to hold on until inevitably, you know, the, the grip had to be shattered. She had, and Alice, you know, kind of yanked herself free. Um, and as I said, it was, it was a messy split and they had a lot of lingering bad feelings. Um, you know, so they had several years of, of really incredible, almost too close a relationship followed by many years in the, in the wilderness between them. I guess we should, before we go any further, contextualize Alice's achievements on the tennis court. Cause it's really extraordinary, isn't it? Um, she wins the U S nationals as it was called then in 1936 after coming back, doesn't she? And then in 39, after being denied at Wimbledon um, in the past, she finally wins the Wimbledon title, doesn't she? And not only that, she wins the women's doubles and the mixed doubles as well. And she does the same at the US Open. So she's holding six slams at the same time, which is incredible. And as you say, it goes on a 235 match winning streak. But just to go back to that 1936 title. Yeah. I know it's one of the writers that you quote in the books calls it the best comeback in sporting history. Do you think, would you agree with that? Well, that was at the time. Let's remember, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So it was, we've had a lot of years of, uh, of epic comebacks since. So I don't want to uh, compare and contrast necessarily, but that just goes to show you what an amazing uh, effort it was. And, you know, a lot of that is also due to a portion of sexism where there was, a, you know, the idea that a woman, even a great athlete like Alice could you know, be delivered such a body blow, such as a tuberculosis uh, diagnosis, and then shrug it off in essence, forget about two years away from, away from the highest level of competition and come back and storm to the biggest title in, in the country and the second biggest really after Wimbledon. Uh, you know, that, that just describing it just like that tells you that it was an amazing achievement and an amazing uh, turnaround in Alice's life. And from there, that really, you know, she, she didn't win every single tournament that she entered from then on in, but the ones that she lost uh, were far outweighed by the numbers that she won. And she also, as you mentioned, was an extraordinary doubles player, one of the best doubles player really of all time. And uh, between regular doubles and mixed doubles, along with her four U.S. national singles titles and her, her lone Wimbledon title, she won 18, what we would call today Grand Slam major championships, uh, she never played the French Open or the Australian Open. That was, at the time, really reserved for uh, people with enough wealth to get to those faraway places, which Alice, you know, didn't have. Uh, and also, you know, people who 
were a little bit more dedicated. I was usually spent those that time of the year playing in California tournaments where she was from and where she was obviously uh, lionized to an extraordinary degree. And it was, was not quite the Grand Slam all the time. You play 50 or 48 weeks a year kind of schedule that we think of now. Really then it was just a summertime sport and it geared up. You know, you played Wimbledon and then you played the bunch of lead up tournaments to the US Nationals and then that was really the end of the season. So she dominated that stretch of what she played. Uh, and you know, the latter half of the thirties belonged to her and who knows how many more she would have won had not World War II come along. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? She could have been one of those decorated tennis players of all time, couldn't she easily? Um but I wonder as well, what was your sense of how her playing style evolved throughout the thirties as she was working with Eleanor Tennant? Well, you know, she had always been just, uh, you know, from the very moment when she took up the sport, or even back when she was 13, 14 years old, she was a great natural athlete, played baseball before she even played tennis and was one of the best players in the city, boy or girl, uh, and was uh, just a natural at every sport she picked up really. So she won a lot of tournaments, especially local ones and around California, based on just pure athleticism. Her power and speed was, you know, I, I liken it a bit to uh, when Martina Navratilova was dominating in the 80s based on pure just athletic prowess. And, uh, you know, there was nobody who could, at that level, who could take her on. And then she got to the national stage and realized, you know, that the, the surfaces were different, the players were different, there was a lot more finesse, there was a lot more strategic uh, thoughts to go into the game. There was a lot of psychological warfare. And these were things where she was really completely unprepared for. And so she had struggled at first. And that's why she sought out uh, Eleanor Tennant in the first place. And Eleanor really provided all of that and then some in spades. And her game, the first thing she did was change Alice's grip, <laughs> which was what they called a Western grip to the more natural, what we think of as the Eastern grip, where you shake hands with a racket. Uh, most listeners probably are familiar with that sort of the standard of today. And that, that really happened before that she was really just kind of swinging a baseball bat at the, <laughs> the ball every time. And because she was such a good athlete, she got away with it. But, you know, once she hooked up with Eleanor, it became much more of a, a game that you would recognize today as a, as a classic serve and volley game where she was, you know, really moving her opponent around the court. Her serve was one of the best ever. Her volleys were some of the best ever. So she dominated based on that particular combination. And yet when it didn't, wasn't working as whereas before she would be at sea in that situation. Now, because of Eleanor, she really had the all around game to work or work her way to a victory, even when things weren't necessarily working uh, in terms of her ground strokes, she had the mental capacity to outthink her opponents and to get them where they wanted to be. And her, her mental stamina was much greater and she was able to win a lot of matches. She never would have won prior to Eleanor's coaching her. So, you know, there's no question that while Alice's physical talents would have gotten her close to, you know, being one of the best players of that era, without uh, without Eleanor, she never would have achieved what she did. I guess the one of the backdrops we should mention to all of this, as we've kind of alluded to already, is um, it, it's a very different world in tennis, right, in terms of how you earn your money. And Alice is penniless, for most of her life, isn't she? And it's kind of the story of patronage, isn't it? The, the biography you yeah. listed. I just wonder. I don't know what was your what was your sense of Alice's feelings about that dependence she, she always had on other people, and do you think she kind of 
just continued to play tennis because she loved the sport almost. Um, and it was maybe a kind of love-hate relationship because of the the money she couldn't earn from it. Probably a little of that, yeah. I mean, I think at first, she, you know, it was certainly, even though there was no uh, prize money involved, you know, it was still a ticket out of what had been a very, you know, obviously tough upbringing and a poverty-stricken upbringing. There was, there was money to be had. A lot of it came from sort of word of mouth that allowed Alice, once she had success, to go into other sidelines you know her, her she had always had a, a side hustle or three uh and extend her brand alice Mar- marvel inc was a very important brand in the late 30s and early 40s so whereas she didn't win prize money she still was able to at least make some money and then she turned pro finally when when tennis was sidelined by world war ii she was able to briefly before u.s entered the war turn pro and make a, a sizable sum of money so you know her relationship with the fact that you know, as you say, patronage, I think at first she was dazzled by it, really. You know, Eleanor had introduced her to this incredible world of movie stars and multi, multi-billionaires, really. I mean, William Randolph Hearst was one of her biggest backers. This is one of the richest men in America or the world, really, at the time. And there were various others, the DuPont, uh, Scion, Will DuPont, uh, and Otto Kahn in New York. I mean, these are heavy, heavy hitters who with tons of money, and they all doted on Alice. Now, they didn't give her money. Uh, just like peel off hundreds necessarily and hand it to her, but they allowed Alice into their world and, and let her stay at their mansions for weeks at a time leading up to tournaments and let Alice feel like she was part of their universe, even though, of course, she wasn't really. She didn't even have her own bank account. I mean, she didn't have any money to speak of for most of that time. So it was a, a definite kind of dichotomy that she was living in. And I think that, you know, it lent itself in a lot of ways to her post-tennis struggles, uh, you know, when the 1950s rolled around, she found herself sort of out of the, the mainstream, out of tennis, and out of that world, and without the yeah, thousands or millions of dollars that a player of her ilk would have earned, even if, you know, 25 years later, 30 years later, much less today. So it definitely fed into some of the, let's just say, it, you know, some of the things that she did later, which we'll get to later in the interview concerning her, uh, her fabulism, shall we say. A lot of it, I think, did stem from sort of this lingering feel of missed opportunity and missed you know, just the comfort of her life, what it could have been had she been paid to her talent level all that way along. Even though while it was happening, I don't think she necessarily felt like it was unfair or that she was missing out on anything just because you know nobody in that world really had that kind of opportunity, men or women. They all played amateur tennis. But then when she saw the coming of the professional era and realized that she had been born just a few years early, um, I think that fed into a lot of resentment later in her life. Yeah. Do you think you mentioned that she's a lot of tournaments where Chrissy Everts playing in the seventies, a lot of desert tournaments and Everts kind of got striking similarity to Marvel, if not in playing style, then in, in looks. Um, did she feel resentful later in her career when she saw now Russell over and ever making so much money. I mean, there's no way she, she couldn't have felt it. You know, I mean, did it eat away at her soul every night so that she couldn't sleep and to the point where she pulled out a Chris Everett voodoo doll and <laughs> stuck a kid in it? I, you know, I don't necessarily want to go that far. But yeah, I mean, you know, had she been, I mentioned the name Will DuPont, who sort of kept her uh, throughout the, the 50s and 60s by giving her 
you know, sort of a monthly stipend and allowed her to ask him for money whenever she needed it. But it wasn't like she was actually married to him and he had wanted her to marry him uh, several times. But Alice was, of course, bisexual and didn't particularly want to be married to this guy, even though it would have meant a life of ease and comfort. I think maybe that there was an element to that had she been you know, married to this guy or lived a life of ease and, and languor and you know, saw then the money that she missed out on in, in professional tennis might have fell a little bit differently, but instead she was living, you know, kind of in a kind of in a rundown neighborhood in the, in the desert in Palm Desert, California, and you know, kind of a kind of a cruddy, not a, not a terrible place, not not a shack, but hardly living a life of leisure, and not certainly not in a in a mansion that uh, she would have been living in had she been Mrs. Will Dupont. So, um, you know, there's no there's no way she would not have been human if she didn't feel some resentment and, and a little bit of, of envy and, like I say, regret at just having been born too soon. But, uh, you know, I, she was always very careful to say that, you know, it, she greatly respected Chris Everett and Martina and all the other women who were out there making a lot of money and they deserved every penny they got. It's just unfortunate she was, like I say, born, born just a little bit too soon. Sure, yeah. And I really want to ask you uh, a persistent thread throughout the book. So I guess you're kind of tracking, as well as Alice Marvel's life, you're tracking your own research process in a way, and it's one that takes you down a lot of avenues, and sometimes they're dead ends, and sometimes they take you to extraordinary revelations. Um, and there's a really interesting quote you, you draw from Riggs, from Bobby Riggs, where he says, I found it difficult to separate facts from fiction during my life. And Alice seems to have the same, apparently seems to have the same problem in a way, doesn't she? Although sometimes for, for very good reasons, right? She conceals things. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this all stems from her sort of second memoir that I mentioned that I, I picked up quite by accident that day in the, in the bookstore. And, um, you know, she, it, uh, first of all, I'll get to your point about you know, the research, uh, when I first read the book, that memoir, and saw that she said that she had been a, a spy during World War II, and one of her missions was to go on, uh, to go to Switzerland and, and find this Swiss banker who she had had an affair with before the war, and who was now, according to American intelligence, uh, working hand in hand with, with the Nazis and you know, hiding and, and laundering their their ill-gotten booty in preparation for fleeing to points un, uh, unknown after World War II ended. Uh, her mission was to go and find this guy uh, who she used to love, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, but you know, kind of re-enter his life, sleep with him again, and you know, get any information or evidence she possibly could of his nefarious activity. And she claims she did just that, and wound up not just getting the evidence in this kind of classic scene where she descends into this guy's wine cellar in his chateau in Switzerland, uh, just outside Geneva, and finds the evidence that gets chased out of the chateau and winds up on a mountain road racing away at 80 miles an hour and ends up being shot in the back for her trouble. And not only does she lose her evidence, but uh, she almost dies. But then because she has a photographic memory, or so she claimed, uh, she was able still to give U.S. intelligence enough working material to uh, work on this guy and, and send away a few Nazis in the subsequent Nuremberg trials after the war. So it's an incredible story. Needless to say, even as I read it the first time, it seemed a little, you know, a little bit too cinematic for its own good. But I figured there was enough there to 
you know, there had to be some element of truth to it. And that's when I sort of went down my, then my path of discovery, as you say, and then put on my detective hat, um, my, my Sherlock Holmes uh, deer hunter hat there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't my intent. Like I said, when I first you know, pitched the book, I, it was just as more of a straight biography, a, a aerial view of this entire woman's life and everything she had done and, you know, what everything was uh, to be contextualized, what she did, so many different elements to her life. But I found that because I couldn't really prove a lot of the events that she claimed had happened, especially these World War II uh, stories. She also claimed that she was married to a pilot who had been shot down over Germany in a bombing mission and also there, very little proof of anything concrete, or what she said anyway. There was also various tendrils of, of potential things that uh, I found. You know, I, I was for a while really kind of stymied and I didn't know exactly how to proceed with writing a book like this. Do I outright call her a liar? <laughs> I don't want to do that, but do I just mention all the places where I can't find any evidence and leave it at that. That seemed to not really work either. Finally, I realized, and with the help of a couple of friends who pointed out that, you know, they kind of the best parts of detective stories are not really the solution to the mystery, but the process of watching the, the detective or the investigator or whatever, you know, go through the evidence and, and try and find his way and to the truth or whatever form of truth they can find. It's really the process, not the, not the result. And so that's sort of how I wound up proceeding with, uh, with the story and the, and the writing was to insert myself in and, you know, kind of play the part of the reader along the way and saying, hey, this is fascinating, but here's what I discovered. I'm really frustrated at this point and at this next point, a breakthrough and, and some revelations that were not what I were expecting. And here's something that I couldn't find any answers to at all. And I'm still frustrated by it. And just sort of let everybody in on the entirety of what I went through in the research. And it seems to be, at least from the reaction so far, the uh, uh, right way to go, because, you know, there's so many elements to Alice that remain mysterious, as well as, you know, you know nuanced. You know, the subtitle of the book is a, a, a life of tennis intrigue and mystery and the mystery part is very much or tennis fame mystery I should say uh the mystery part is still uh, very much a part of her life even all these years after her death and and all this research that I have done to try and <laughs> ferret out what actually happened and a lot of it may never truly be revealed but I did you know sort of as you alluded to find some elements of truth and, and things that she was clearly trying to keep quiet or, or keep sort of misdirected and uh, in that sense, where the story leads, hopefully the reader will find fascinating as I did. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more I, I, I wanted to ask you about. I mean, there's, we don't want to cover the whole biography, obviously. And there's, if people <laughs> should go out and buy it because it's got some incredible right. details about Altia Gibson, the role she had in her life, and yeah. the lecturing that she did up and down the country, and her skills as a writer as well, which I had no idea about. But I guess my final question for you, Robert, is kind of a two part one then. I guess, firstly, what you found to be the mystery of Alice Marvel, as the title goes, and also why mm. she had these kind of apparent fabrications throughout her life. And I guess she was always performing, and in, in a way, wasn't she? There's this great detail you point out of her going to, to charming school, and she's in front of cameras often, and she's a celebrity, isn't she? I guess. So she's always performing. So why do you think she 
modeled her life? Was it to make it more because she was bisexual? Was it to make it more kind of acceptable for a public? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of reason and no, there's probably no one more than the other, but um, you know, part of it is definitely, as you say, she was used to living uh, a life that was kind of hidden that is shadowed by her sexuality, especially in the thirties and forties when it was certainly not something you talked about in, in open or even often private company. Um, you know, that she was very comfortable with that. And I think that led her to sort of be very comfortable in kind of presenting a, a persona of Alice Marble to the public and to other people that she wanted them to, to see and was very malleable and pliable and could you know be reworked on demand for the uh, particular audience that she was she was presenting to uh while the real alice marble what we would call quote unquote the real alice marble was you know hidden away somewhat and, and very quiet and she gets into this in her own memoirs and you know one thing that we didn't touch on and probably we should mention is, is the fact that you know, she revealed at the end of her life that she had been sexually assaulted when she was just a teenager uh, in Golden Gate Park, ironically enough. And you know, I think that really, more than even she let herself allow throughout her life, uh, shaped and molded the way she kind of uh, you know, associated with people and, and always had a guard up. Needless to say, that's not hardly surprising given the circumstances. And, and because that she had to perform, not just on the tennis court, but perform for... You know, like you said, her patrons and performed for people that she was, you know, on the radio and then a nightclub singer and was lecturing relentlessly all the time to all these people. She became very adept at being able to, you know, say one story in one city and then another story in another city. And all of them were mostly true, but there would be details here and there that got shaded and over the course of her life. Uh, and then you factor in. The idea that she was not compensated, as she probably should have been for her remarkable talents throughout the years. I think at the end of her life, when it came time to you know, put her life on paper in her own mind, she believed most of these stories were true enough, you know, <laughs> I guess would be the way to say it. They had a lot of elements of truth, even if there were details, many details that necessarily didn't, weren't true or weren't provable. Um, the essence of it was true. And you got to remember, she also grew up in a life uh, in a world pre-Google and pre-internet and people weren't fact-checking everything you said all the time. It was sort of, you know, that was actually looked on favorably in some, in some circles and in some ways to be, you know, somebody gave the people what they want, for lack of a better term. She, you know, really did that. You know, she's always playing to the crowd on the court and certainly off it. And I think she really took that as part of her, her natural persona all the way to the end of her life. And, you know, perhaps she was also just thinking purely uh, from a <laughs> mercantile standpoint to write the best book she could and pack in as much action as she possibly could. And if it was all true, well, you know, when the fact meets the legend, print the legend, as they say. So, uh, you know, she and then she passed away before she could really face the recriminations of any of her her story that wasn't true. So it worked out in the end for her. And I, I think that's a sort of long way of saying there were a lot of ways to find the true Alice and, and why she you know, presented herself the way she did. There's no one simple answer. And that's, you know, part of the reason she's such a fascinating figure is because every time you peel a layer of the onion away, there's something even more interesting and revealing underneath. And she, she never disappoints. Well, Robert, thank you for giving us a window into the, 
rich, complex life of Alice Marble. Um, I should say that The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis Fame and Mystery by Robert Weintraub is available from Dutton um, and all good bookshops as well. Uh, look, Robert, thanks so much for joining us on the Grand Slam Tennis Podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure, Finn. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.